Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you very much. I always, um, I am increasingly unhappy listening to that kind of introduction because it suggests I've been as alive as long as I've been alive and it couldn't possibly be true. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here again um, after a very um, happy and comfortable fall semester um, here and uh, thank the Institute and NYU Abu Dhabi for the opportunity to spend some time thinking about these kinds of questions. This has actually been a long time preoccupation of mine and so some of you may already have heard me say some of what I'm going to say or uh, tell some of the stories that I will be telling because I really care a great deal about this question of the power and utility and purpose of the liberal arts in the 21st century. I think it's a contested question um, and I will look forward to the kinds of comments and observations that you have at the close of my remarks. Um, it's a complicated time and a complicated issue, and the more we can think about this together and collectively, I think the better off we'll all be. Liberal arts education, which is what is represented here at NYU Abu Dhabi, sometimes described as cross-training for the mind, is widely acknowledged to foster creativity, agility, resilience, intellectual breadth. It's supposed to serve as a comprehensive foundation for lifelong professional success, as well as constructive community engagement and responsible citizenship. So it seems great. Yet, at the same time, the liberal arts are often characterized as extravagant indulgences in the face of the pressing demands of fast-changing labor markets, workforce needs. We need to get people out there who have the skills that the workforce demands. And, as I will suggest, national security priorities as well. Even as friendly a figure as former American President Barack Obama observed that, and I quote, folks can make a lot more potentially with skilled manufacturing or the trades than they might with an art history degree. He later apologized, <laughs> but he had made his point. This kind of education seems like a luxury, and yet, it's supposed to do all these things that we think are important. So this evening I want to suggest that urgent as the needs may be for technically skilled professionals, measurable accountabilities, utilitarian research, the kinds of things that meet the needs of the moment, universities and their students and their graduates and their employers and their governors and their faculty and families, in other words, the university community broadly understood will do themselves a disservice if they focus only on the remedies to the problems of the moment and the urgent demands of the day. It's a temptation to be relevant, but instant to solutions to obvious difficulties, not least the pressures of the market and the demands of security, will not address the kinds of profound challenges that the world confronts today. That's the argument I want to make. 
This is an era in which the future is unusually uncertain and increasingly alarming. And the, the, in such a future, in such an era, the breadth and depth of the liberal arts, a fitness regime for the soul, perhaps, are all the more indispensable. So let me begin to examine this proposition by looking first at the nature of the globalization, the world we live in, and the role of the universities are attempting to play in it. So what we call globalization is a reflection of extraordinary and accelerating growth in the circulation of goods and people and ideas across the globe over the last 50 to 100 years. In the last quarter century or so, since the end of the Cold War, globalization has emphasized international economic integration that was based really on a sense that the magic of the marketplace would provide opportunities for everyone and that those impediments represented by states should be moved out of the way. The shrinkage of the state in favor of the market was the guiding ideology for the character of globalization for the last 25 or 30 years. That's what became known as the Washington Consensus, prevailed as leaders as different as Reagan and Thatcher and Gorbachev and the IMF and the World Bank, pretty much the intellectual elite of the 1980s, argued that more trade and less regulation would bring benefits both to poor countries and to disadvantaged people in rich countries. This view of globalization was contested from the very outset, and it has increasingly found critics from Nobel laureates like Joe Stiglitz and Amartya Sen, who questioned whether it actually has benefited poor countries, to popular campaigns like the Occupy movements, the Brexit advocates, and now the Trump supporters, who question whether it has actually served ordinary people, even in rich countries. I'll return to the economic debates around globalization and their impacts on universities in a moment. First, however, I want to remind you as well of the security implications. With the dismantling of the state, or at least it's shrinking and becoming more focused and less inclusive, and the simultaneous globalization of policy challenges, from terrorism to climate change, disease, transnational crime, migration, you know what these transnational policy issues are, the notion of security has shifted from menaces, threats, not to the state's existence. So we have states in the world. These states are not threatened by these kinds of transnational developments. So much as challenges to the state's capacity to protect the people for which it is responsible. So there was a time up until the end of the Second World War where the principal dynamic of security and thinking about security was conflict between states. Now you see conflict across states, within states. This is less well documented in terms of the nature of globalization than the economic imperatives, but this change in the conception of security has also created a growing zone of mutual mistrust between people and their governments everywhere. And that also is shaping, to some extent, these kinds of uprisings against governments, whether they are Occupy movements or votes in democratic regimes against 
the establishment, whoever they may be. And this is, of course, not least because governments struggle to deliver on the promises of security in the face of porous boundaries, which we all know, and threats that seem more visible and more terrifying on our phones than they did when we might have read about them in the newspaper 50 years ago or heard about them on the telegraph 100 years ago. As an analyst of the Middle East said nearly 20 years ago, many of the states of the region have no greater enemy than their own governments. And evidently many people now think that across the world from the UK to the US and beyond and the growing hostility between governments and people seems to be mutual. So this sense of insecurity on the part of governments and on the part of populations in states, the blurring of boundaries between international and domestic risks and responsibilities, and the increasing estrangement of peoples and governments has had a surprisingly profound impact on universities, although I don't think that we have reflected on that as much as we might. Fears of hostile or malicious interference in or theft of scientific data, methods, or findings, whether by foreign powers, commercial competitors, non-state networks of criminals or terrorists, which we hear about in hacking, we're worrying about hacking in the United States, we're worrying about all sorts of theft of, of patentable materials in universities and so forth. These kinds of fears of this kind of interference has given rise to new efforts to secure or securitize science. And by science, I mean broadly construed what we do in the academy. This is currently principally true in the natural and physical sciences, where the dilemmas of ensuring appropriate safeguards for dual-use research, that is, things that are good when we do it and bad when somebody else does it, are widely recognized. But the much research in the humanities and social sciences is easily deemed dangerous were it to fall in the hands of the mischievous or the wicked. So keep in mind that much of what we do at universities is actually contested and is actually viewed by someone as, as potentially, really or potentially dangerous. So globalization has created new pressures on universities at just as the shrinkage of the state has meant that most governments in the world neither can nor will support higher education at the scale demanded by either prospective students or prospective employers. This is true everywhere, including in the Arab world. So let me tell you a little bit about the specific circumstances of the region in which we are, that is to say, the Arab region. The International Labor, Labor Organization estimated last year that, youth unemployment, that the youth unemployment rate in the Arab states is the highest in the world, at about 30%. For some time, oil exporting countries, such as the one in which we are currently resident, are projected to see an increase in the youth unemployment rate as the re result of slowdowns in growth. And, as the ILO dryly observed, geopolitical tensions will continue to weigh on youth employment prospects in other countries of the region. So obviously, the question of what's going on with the group of people who would ordinarily be the catchment area of universities is important here. How has the academy in the Arab world responded to this challenge? Let us start with the observation that as a sector, the universities 
the university world and region is relatively young. Until 1953, there were four, 14 universities in the region. 97% of the approximately 600 regions, universities in the region today were established after 1950 and 70% after 1991. The first universities established after independence, those founded between about 1950 and 1980, were part of state-led develop, national development projects designed to both broaden access to higher education and to train the civil service of the newly independent countries. There was a clear purpose, a national purpose, to the university sector. That post-independence expansion of the state and its related faith in the value of education and research, which is why they paid for it, was short-lived. The global erosion of confidence in state-led development in the 1970s and 80s contributed to the deterioration of national universities as governments paid less and less attention and funding to these universities. Today, public universities everywhere in the region are heavily subsidized and run at a considerable financial loss. Yet despite the oft-remarked decline in quality, they cannot absorb the demand for places. For the Arab world, the gross tertiary education enrollment of people in the age range of 18 to 22, in other words, the proportion of people that age who are in universities is about 20%. The OECD average is over 40%. The response to this crisis has been to authorize private universities. Clearly, the public universities in the region could not meet the demand in terms of places or in terms of the funding of the institutions. Today, about 250 of the Arab world's 600 universities, or about 40%, are private, almost entirely for-profit institutions, and almost all established since 1990. And they account for about 30% of the region's university enrollments. Now, these universities charge often substantial tuitions to meet the growing demand for requalification. In other words, one of their biggest markets is graduates of the national universities who can't find jobs, and so they get requalified at the private universities through graduate programs and executive training, as well as generally widespread pressure for marketable degrees. Now, naturally, this development the growth of the private university, privileges those who can pay such fees and creates a market for education where it had been understood as a public good and a national resource. So now we have a market, and we use the language of a market to describe higher education. And the competition within this market has its own reinforcing effects. This is not only true of the region, but in general. Michael Boraway has put it this way, one of the most perverse consequences of privatization of higher education is the rise of instrumental rationality, the global ranking of universities in terms of excellence, that's his quote, which serve to guide investment decisions of corporations looking to outsource research or direct wealthy parents who are looking for guidance. The Reliable credentialing for their children is what they need 
So they're looking for how do you figure out whether this is worth the investment of paying the tuition. What's interesting is, for the Arab world, the vast majority of students in the region, as in many other places in the global south, are first-generation university students. Obviously, you saw what the numbers of universities were. In the absence of personal family experience, they and their families, the students and their families, need some way to assess the quality or to use the language that Borowai disdains, the likely return on investment of a university degree. And it's not always easy to tell what the return on investment of a given degree might be. Non-recognized, illegal, and fake institutions, that's an official category, non-recognized, illegal, and fake institutions, about which it warns prospective applicants is, are listed on the website of the Higher Education Commission of Pakistan, and there are 166. So fake news and alternative facts are certainly not recent inventions in the world of knowledge production. But Burroway is right. We see universities around the world driven by productivity, utility, accountability, profitability, returns on investment, competitive rankings, supply chain management, customer satisfaction, data-driven decision-making. This is the way universities frame what they do. They reflect the economic accent of contemporary globalization. As several researchers succinctly put it, over the past two decades, universities across the world have begun a transformation from scholarly institutions concerned with intellectual pursuit in terms of their own merits into an industry concerned with the pursuit of measurable contributions to economic life. In other words, academic work and culture has been thoroughly financialized, not my word, through shifts in government policy, the efforts of international organizations, and the growing importance within universities of a new class of managers who view academia as business. Now, obviously, there's some resistance to the efforts to hold universities to commercial standards. But those efforts persist. And in fact, if this is the arena in which students want to work, that is to say the domain of global capitalism, the perspective such commercialized universities provide may be useful. So we shouldn't necessarily dismiss it out of hand. It's no surprise that business programs are among the most popular and the most lucrative of new universities everywhere. So too, pre other pre-professional programs, particularly medicine and engineering, which are both generally high status, particularly in this part of the world, so families are happy, and as fields in which technology is rapidly evolving, are therefore in high demand in both public and private sectors. STEM disciplines, that is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, are almost universally believed to be the key to knowledge economies in the coming decades. And everywhere, from the US to the EU to China to Egypt to the UAE to Pakistan, governments encourage meeting the demands of a market for high-tech skills. So there is a sense that this idea of a knowledge economy and meeting market needs are, is what drives the, and justifies the existence of these kinds of institutions. I'll return to, market, to knowledge economies shortly. But as I suggested several minutes ago, the problems universities face are not only a reflection of the emphasis on economic values, although I think that is significant, 
There is actually hardly universal enthusiasm for university-based research, whether in science and technology or other fields, including the social sciences and humanities. And there are several reasons for this. In one, in, to some extent, it's because of the return on investment, and again, keep in mind somebody's paying for the research that's being done, just as they're paying for the education that's being provided. The return on investment in research is often unpredictable and slow to realize. So in the first instance, just as a commercial matter, why would you put money into something where you don't really know when you're going to be able to realize the value of that investment? But perhaps more importantly, at least for this evening, that many kinds of research can be put to what is deemed by the investor to be malicious purposes. Now, the American government, this is the United States government, this is the Office of Biotechnology Activities of the American government, says, and I quote, we must be careful about Quote, research that based on current understanding can be reasonably anticipated to provide knowledge, information, products, or technologies that could be directly misapplied to pose a significant threat with broad potential consequences to public health and safety, agricultural crops or other plants, animals, the environment, material, or national security. So even the American government in a context in which academic freedom and research and so forth has been celebrated for decades, if not centuries, is increasingly concerned about the potential misuse, the malicious uses to which research can be put. Governments eager to foster the knowledge production that will produce innovation and promote a thriving economy, such as the United States, are reluctant to invest in many kinds of research, including in the humanities and social sciences. So you can imagine biotechnology might be scary, might be worrisome to a government. But in fact, there are lots of things that can worry a government that's inclined to worry. And as I suggested before, this increasing mistrust between governments and their populations, their citizens, shapes some of that. Historical maps, for example, so you may want to do research in history, you may want to use the archives, you may want to use maps from the 19th century. Well, in fact, maps from the 19th century have been used by governments to establish borders. Ha, huh, well, now we have a security issue. All those maps have become classified. Or you may be interested in the social science surveys of various kinds of populations in a country, but it turns out that those populations are poorer than you thought they were or more unhappy than you expected them to be. Lo and behold, you're actually not as interested as you thought you were in the results of social surveys. Artistic production may provide um, opportunities for people to think about provocative ideas, but they also may be insulting or offensive. So governments increasingly are beginning to think about whether these are, these are investments they want to make. In the Arab world, these concerns are heightened by histories of colonialism and neocolonialism, new and often frail national identities, and as I suggested before, shallow educational reach wherein many of the people in the countries in question um, are new to higher education and to research. 
In some countries, this makes foreign participation in research, whether through funding or collaboration, suspect. And since the audience for social science research particularly is only a generation or two deep, even local researchers may be suspect. An Egyptian anthropologist has written that, and I quote, Arabic readers and consumers pose a serious problem in the reception of critical sociological imagination, since critical findings may be disturbing and perceived as insulting. Indeed, in its formal, abstract, mechanical, perhaps algorithmic allocation of goods and fortunes, globalization of capitalism seems to dis demean, disrespect, or endanger other important features of human life and community. From both left and right, critics of globalization point to its neglect of other values that they embrace as part of a well-lived life, community and justice, dignity, freedom, the stewardship of nature and the environment. And in some places, this globalization has provoked a backlash, or perhaps several, since both those who have not shared in the wealth created by neoliberal globalization and those whose values are not confined to wealth itself are seeking a voice. And this, too, has impinged on the university. The vote for breakfast in, Brexit in the UK, the support for Trump in the US, some of the Occupy movements, many in the Arab uprisings, reflect the first sentiment of having been left behind as the global 1% grew richer and richer. The rise of religious and nativist national movements from the far-right parties in Europe, extremist movements in the Muslim world, Christian fundamentalist and ultra-Orthodox Jews reflect both the disappointment of individuals who, are, who fear they are obsolete and overtaken, the left behind, and the alienation of those who, as I once wrote, think of themselves more as souls than statistics. Where do we find a way through this tangle of triumph of, and fear of numbers and sentiments? Are we teaching the next generation's leaders, and all of us think we're teaching leaders, our university students, what they need to know? The utilitarian instrumental purposes of higher education to satisfy the labor market, ensure employability, stimulate innovation, secure stability, and spur growth seem everywhere to be triumphant and wholly inadequate to the urgent and important task of actually understanding our world. So let me now return to the conception of education in the liberal arts. As we have seen, education is widely viewed as one of the key principles in success in the 21st century. From governments, including that of the UAE, aiming to foster knowledge economies, to families, including many here in the Emirates, striving to ensure a secure future for their children. Across the world, we see demand for quality education rising. But what is a quality education? Obviously, at the primary and secondary levels, there are skills that children must learn to operate effectively in a world that increasingly demands more than local knowledge. So this is part of globalization, even in primary school. Literacy and numeracy have become essential proficiencies in the 21st century. So too, the less easily quantified skills of perseverance and time management and sociability and self-discipline that equip individuals for life in a global industrial world. But for most governments and many families, that's not enough. Accomplished community leaders, successful professionals, 
Indeed, even the responsible parents of the future, that is to say, our graduates, must navigate a fast-changing and demanding world in ways that go well beyond technical skills and self-discipline. This suggests that an education that ensures its graduates are competent to meet the challenges of living in a complex world, not just the demands of the workplace. After all, work itself is changing. The increasing mobility of people and the separation of labor itself from physical spaces, thanks to the technologies that we carry in our increasingly peripatetic pockets, the world of work is woven into lives of increasing complexity. Everybody in this room emailed somebody halfway around the world today, I promise you. And that experience of moving from work to, from the place you are into a world where your global collaborators and so forth are anywhere and you actually don't know where they are is more and more our experience. We may soon be liberated from our cotton fields and our assembly lines and our office desks by technologies that harvest our produce and manufacture our goods and, and direct our staffs without us. But we will also confront managing our time without the seasons and without the factory whistle and without the time clock that provides the structure and discipline of the way we've thought about work for millennia. In that sense, we're moving into a new world, immigrating into the future, as it were, and we will encounter people who are as alien to us as Martians. Indeed, some of us may even meet Martians, you never know. But more importantly, the people we will meet will be our children for our students. And like immigrants throughout history, we will need to figure out ways to communicate with our new acquaintances, colleagues, and neighbors, to figure out what they're saying and doing and why, if only to establish if they are friend or foe, opportunity or threat. In many ways, the UAE itself represents a peak at that future. And this is one of the ways it characterizes itself. Much of the work done here is so deeply embedded in a globalized world that those who do it are thousands of miles from what they would otherwise call home, working a daily routine and an annual calendar that is vastly different from what they knew 20 years ago. Yet everyone here in the Emirates has the same phone in their pocket as I do. And they know, or can know, in astonishing detail what Melania Trump served for her International Women's Day luncheon earlier this month, chicken, as well as what the job market for management consultants looks like in Singapore, how the Filipino nurses who were freed from IS captivity in Libya are doing today, and whether the money they just sent home to Kerala has arrived. As the reach of our gaze extends, our horizons widen, the strength of our attachments weaken. We are all members of Guy Standing's precariat, people whose ambitions are repaid in risk and uncertainty. Without the stability and familiarity that went with limited horizons, without the discipline and predictability of limited possibilities, how are we all to cope with a world of such vast opportunities? For those who know how to navigate it, that world, the world we live in, is fascinating, tantalizing, and full of promise. For those who don't, it is terrifying, frustrating, and full of peril. So how do we prepare the next generations for that world? Not 
I would suggest, by emphasizing the current needs of the current labor market. Certainly, today's graduates should acquire skills suitable to a first job. But if that's all they get, we will have failed them, since that first job will not be their last job. Indeed, it will be the first of eight or ten different and likely precarious, even if lucrative, jobs that they're likely to hold over the course of their careers. And it will not be adequate preparation for integrating that job or any other into a productive and satisfying life as an adult person with friends and family, community, and citizenship. Nor should we unduly privilege the imperatives of security and stability. Of course, security is important to the pursuit of a productive and satisfying life. I do not have to tell an audience in the Middle East that the cost of its absence is everywhere apparent. But if we are to embrace and succeed in a world in which opportunity is inextricably linked with risk and uncertainty, we protect our youth from danger only at the cost of shrinking their range of possibilities. Instead, we should equip them with what might be called self-defense skills, competencies that will alert them to danger and opportunity, abilities that let them distinguish falsehood from truth, deceit from sincerity, that will carry them through a lifetime of risk and hazard and opportunity. Our universities do not typically make the case for what they do in terms of workforce needs or security imperatives in this way. We talk as universities too much about the labor market and not enough about productive lives, too much about institutional risk management and not enough about sustainable human dignity. But those are the real challenges, and they lead us back to a kind of education that was conceived and flourished in another time of great change, the great transformations of the 19th century, the liberal arts. The liberal arts are in many ways an American educational invention, often and largely inaccurately attributed to classical Greece and medieval Europe, or Renaissance Europe, where the knowledge essential to the life of a free, hence liberal, or liberated, not progressive, person were thought to include grammar, logic, and rhetoric, that is, making a coherent and effective argument, exercising reason and good judgment, all things we think our graduates should be able to do, as well as what we might now call STEM fields, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, like the rest, both considered both a science and an art. For American universities in the 19th century, the notion that they were to prepare young people for productive, dignified lives in an uncertain world led first to the idea that these young people must choose the course of their lives, and then to the conviction that in order to do so responsibly, they should be exposed to multiple ways of understanding in the university curriculum itself. So, Typically, starting about 125 years ago, an American attended university undecided about what field to pursue and spending a year at least studying various fields before electing a concentration or major. During that time, and indeed throughout the next three years or so, the student was expected to take courses outside his or her chosen discipline so as to ensure that the, that said student had been exposed to a varied and diverse range of fields. Those who elected demanding technical majors, such as those in engineering, often spent an extra year fulfilling their liberal arts requirements. So the liberal arts have never been about liberalism as a political ideology, nor about 
arts in the narrow sense of fine arts. It's a theory of education that prizes curiosity and, as we've seen, cross-trains the mind. Why is that valuable? It permits us to explore and develop multiple skills, perspectives, and bodies of knowledge that together strengthen our resilience, self-assurance, and agility. Once intellectually fit, we are more inclined to stay so. Knowing that there is purpose and value in multiple domains serves us in navigating a world in which novelty is commonplace, the unfamiliar is ordinary, and it equips us to change and adapt as well. It whets the appetite for what we've come to call lifelong learning. So if they're obviously so wonderful, why are the liberal arts not universally celebrated? And I will end with these observations. A liberal arts education is hard to deliver, hard to measure, and hard to assess. Much of what we prize in this kind of education only becomes apparent long after we've been launched into the world with our diplomas in hand. Indeed, many of our graduates will return to the small triumphs of sophomoric epiphanies to reactivate the exercise of learning many decades after they leave us. But this mystery of learning lost and regained is one reason why we so often ignore or neglect the liberal arts in favor of what seems to be more urgent technical and professional skills training, where the return on investment may be relatively small, but it's quick, certain, measurable, and safe. Indeed, it is important to acknowledge that a liberal arts education is not easy for anyone. For students and their families, it's often a shock to be exposed to unfamiliar ideas, sometimes even apparently obnoxious and dangerous ideas. Particularly for students who are unaccustomed to encountering difference, those who come from, say, religiously conservative families, perhaps, or young people, increasing numbers of whom, think the world is reflected in their Facebook friends and Twitter followers, it can be painful to realize that there are people who disagree deeply with you on profoundly important issues. But that's the point of cross-training. It builds strength and flexibility in intellectual habits. It is the turns of mind and ways of thinking that you don't ordinarily use. At the beginning, it can be painful. In the long run, it ensures you are fit for challenges you cannot now anticipate. For institutions, sustaining a liberal arts philosophy is difficult as well on several scores. First, we cannot assume that the American model, where it was born and developed, will work elsewhere if only because off-the-shelf technology transfer rarely does. It needs to be adapted to local conditions. And even in the industrial world, what are called the legacy sectors of the advanced economies, including higher education, are undergoing their own radical and often dif difficult transformations in the current economy. In a world of diminished states and precarious work, who will pay for the preparation of the next generation is a very real question. Secondly, it is sometimes politically challenging as students, families, the public, or the authorities look askance at what they may see as noxious ideas circulating on campus. Often these crises are teachable moments as there is an opportunity to make the case that exposure to such ideas contribute to inoculating the community from dangers that should not, indeed cannot, simply be ignored. 
open debate can offer up alternative arguments and ideas. But that is not easy when what you are doing seems, as it sometimes does, subversive or sinister. In a world of diminished states and precarious work, danger seems ever present. And thirdly, it is very difficult to measure and assess the outcomes of this kind of education, particularly graduation. The metrics we use to assess, accredit, and rank universities rarely capture the growing sophistication and maturity of the students, the value that rigorous exposure to unfamiliar ideas and perspectives has decades later when still newer ideas need to be confronted, the self-confidence, agility, and flexibility of mind that permits young people to rise quickly to leadership roles. But it is well to remember that not everything that counts can be counted. So liberal arts education is difficult. It is difficult for the institutions, it's difficult for the faculty, and it's difficult for the students, and that may make it particularly valuable. But not, so as not to leave you disheartened or daunted by the project, let me end with an anecdote that I often tell as it continues to motivate me, even as I think that the reform and expansion of high quality higher education is almost impossible. A part-time graduate student at the American University in Cairo, a liberal arts institution, told me a story of an encounter that she had at a demonstration in Cairo in the winter of 2012. It was a protest against the government, of course, and it was beginning to get violent as people began to throw rocks at the police and, they hurled and the police hurled tear gas canisters back. A thin, poorly dressed teenager ran up to this graduate student. She was obviously an affluent Kyrene, even in her protest clothes. And he shouted, get out, get out, don't get shot. Use your education to save us all. She was stunned, as I still am, by that encounter. But it is the message that inspires the work I'm doing now. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.